Hello and welcome to the God Save Texas edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm joined as ever by Anna Shemansky. Hello. Hello, Anna. I'm joined as ever by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. And quite amazingly and awesomely, I am joined by Lawrence Wright, the famed author of... You have written how many books? Eleven. Eleven books, of which you are still being hunted down by Scientologists. Yeah, well, if you Google my name, you'll see attack ads. And occasionally they assign a private investigator, apparently, to call people that I used to know. You, you, wrote, you wrote the definitive book on Scientology. You wrote the definitive book and a wonderful book called The Looming Tower about Al-Qaeda and basically how 9-11 happened. And, and many more. And you are a staff writer for The New Yorker. Yes, and um, the author of your new book is called? God Save Texas. God Save Texas. It's a rollicking, rolling... What would you, how would you describe this book? It's just a, it's a series of stories, really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's personal history. It is history. It is a, a travelogue. And it is a prayer and, and embodied in the title. God save Texas. I am here in Texas, in Austin, at the KUT studios with Larry. We are going, we have a jam-packed show. We are going to talk about oil, of course, because this is Texas. We are going to talk about the tech boom in Austin. We are going to talk about zoning laws in Houston. We are going to talk about climate change. We are going to talk about wild hogs. We are going to talk about the price of emus. You have no idea what we're going to talk about. We are going to have a sleepless segment about Matthew McConaughey, who whose name I just today learned how to... Um, pronounce. So all of that is coming up on Slate Money. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Given this week's news, we should really lead with Apple because we just found out that Apple is issued basically a, an earnings warning, a profits warning this week because it said that for all that its American revenues were fine and healthy, they'd somehow managed to fall off a cliff in China. 
Um, this came after their big announcement that they were investing a billion dollars in Austin, Texas to build a whole new campus here. They're not doing anything stupid like calling it an HQ2, but it kind of feels a bit like that. They're going to create thousands of jobs and Austin is, which seems to have totally ratified the idea that Austin is a genuine technology hub. And when did that happen? You know, it really began in the 80s when the, this MCC, the microchip uh, consortium, the, was chose, chose Austin as its center. And, you know, there had been Dell. You know, I guess you could really date it to the freshman in the UT dorm, Michael Dell, who decided to start putting computers together in his dorm room. But uh, the, the kind of acknowledgement that Austin was a coming tech center really began then when uh, IBM and other high-tech organizations got together to try to recreate chips uh, and, and have an innovative center here in Austin. And a lot of other countries, companies began to come to Austin to be a part of that. So it predates what I think of as the big sort of boom in Austin, which is like Austin has grown insanely over the past, what, decade or so? You know, the truth is Austin has has a history of steady growth. It's just gotten big enough that people are beginning to notice. And it still is, you know, when I moved here in 1980, uh, it was still a little college town. But it was, you know, it had been growing, but it was growing from a l really little college town to a little college town. And now it's gotten to be the 11th largest city in America. Is there any any worry in Austin the way there was um, when Amazon announced it was coming to Queens? There was a lot of fretting about, you know, the, the effect the big company would have on the city and rising rents and, you know, um, pushing poor people out and that kind of thing. Is there any sort of equivalent um, sounds being Are there made over gentrification there? Gentrification worries? Gentrification, yes. Oh, yes. I, I, my sense of Austin is that the city actively really didn't want Amazon. The city did make a bid, and it was an honor to be on their list, but there was no frantic courtship. You know, it was funny when when Amazon made its decision, I was reading the Austin paper and the Dallas Morning News, and in Dallas, the you know, the reaction was, what's wrong with us? Which is a typical Dallas, you know, <laughs> neurotic, you know, what, how, where did we fail? And, uh, and the headline in the Austin paper was, who cares? Uh, but there, there is a lot of anxiety about the city's loss of diversity, plus this immense crush of traffic. Austin has some of the worst traffic in the whole mm. country. And it is a it's a terrible burden. So, you know, we feel like we're because of our success and this is a problem we shouldn't, you know, it's, if you're going to have a problem, this is a nice problem to have in many respects. But Austin really is suffering from its growing pains, the infrastructure, the traffic and and the and the loss of, uh, I think, a lot of diversity in the city has taken a toll. And the the traffic issue, isn't that also somewhat related to what has made Austin so attractive to a lot of businesses, which is lower taxes. But then the result of that is that you also have lower tax revenues and less spending on infrastructure and public transportation. Well, I think those are not priorities of, of the state government. That's one of the problems. Uh, you know, the it's true that, you know, my feeling about Austin is that when we were here in 1980, uh, it was 
it was still not a very diverse place. You know, it was there was a Hispanic population, a very small black population, but of the cities in Texas, it was one of the least diverse, and it's gotten less diverse over time. Uh, Hispanic population has increased somewhat, but uh, the the black population has essentially been pushed out of East Austin, which is uh, historically the black part of town. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I mourn that because I think that uh, Austin gets a little less interesting when it gets less, di- uh, less diverse as it is now. Although that's a perennial complaint in Austin, isn't it? That yes, it's it becoming is. less interesting over time. Well, you know, everybody who moves here, two weeks later, they re, you know they mourn the loss of the Austin they used to be, and uh, it, it's it's a it, along with cedar fever, you know, the nostalgia for the past is a characteristic Austin uh, response. But the the tech aspect of Austin has been here for decades, and. You, it's kind of uniquely Austin. There's nowhere else in Texas which has that, right? Well, Dallas has a big tech center, but uh, it's Dallas has a much bigger uh, economy, and it's a more it's a larger city and a more diverse city in many respects. So it doesn't feel as the presence of it doesn't feel as significant as it does in Austin, where it is the major economic factor in the city. And I'm curious about what you think about the future of tech in Austin, because on the one hand, it's great you have you have Apple, you have you know Google and Facebook all located there. But I I know in the book, you also talked about the lack of investment in education. And I'm wondering, you know, how that could play out in the future if you don't have a really educated populace. Not to say people aren't educated, but just lack of investment in public education. It's it's I I worry about this more than any other thing in terms of uh, the future of Texas. Uh, You know, we we spend twenty five hundred dollars dollars less per student uh, than the national average. And it shows uh, the nation's report card that came out uh, last year showed that uh, fourth graders in Texas were uh, like 48th in the 45th, I think, in the country. And uh, that, you know. That lack of investment, these are our, not just our children, they're our future. They're the workers of the future. And all these tech companies that we've been talking about, they come here because they want educated and talented people to work for them. And if we don't provide them, then they're not going to come here anymore. In fact, they may leave. So, you know, I, I worry about that, uh, not just for the future of the tech industry, or, but, I, you know, these are children that we need to take care of, and it's our responsibility. So explain that then, because Texas has by far been the choice of companies, you know, wanting to build new headquarters in the U.S., wanting to expand in the U.S. There's insane amounts of growth, not just in Austin, but also in Dallas, as you were saying, and and really across the state. Um, And that's been going on for a while now. How does that square with what you're saying about an absence of an educated population? Well, we have a lot of colleges in this region. You know, not just you know, we're sitting here at the University of Texas where we've got 50,000, you know, young people studying, but that's not, you know, it's one of many colleges in the region. It, it probably has more colleges per capita if you take the whole region than, than practically any other place uh, in this part of the country. So there is a reason people come here for that kind of education. It's the K through 12 is where we're falling down. And this has not been, uh, you know, this is, 
has been a historic problem, but it's become a deeper problem recently. And that's why I'm concerned about it. Uh, the state of Texas has forfeited its responsibility and its contribution to public education. It used to contribute more than 50 percent, 62 percent under Mark White, uh, uh, the governor, when we reorganized school finance previously. But now it's like 38 percent. And uh, the you know terrific burden on tax uh, for uh, for homeowners and so on. Our property taxes are very high, despite the reputation of Texas as being a low tax state. You know, there's no state income tax, but the burden gets pushed onto property owners. And the the the, the other big problem of K through twelve education is just the sheer number of kids in poverty. Just because you, it's right. basically impossible to educate a kid if they. If they're hungry. Yeah. You know, we have a high, you know, California and Texas have a lot in common. And, you know, we have very different models, but the outcomes are similar. Our demography is very similar. And so, you know, we have a lot of non-English speaking students that come into our schools. And and that poses a challenge for public education. But that's the reason we have public education is to educate them uh, into speaking the language of the culture and, and, and acquiring these skills. But we we've we've pulled back so much on our contribution that I th- I think that this it's really beginning to show in the outcomes. And this is going to be something that companies in the future are going to be looking at when they consider whether they want to come to Texas. Uh, will there be a workforce that's adequately educated when they arrive here? And that's it up. You know, right now we're about to have our legislature is about to go into session again. We only do it every other year. And uh, so this is the main subject that's going to be addressed uh, this this session is public school finance and how do we go about financing our public schools and how much the state contribution should be. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. That's a, an excellent segue into the broader question about the climate for entrepreneurship in Texas, and which is which is in the national imagination, and certainly in the Texan imagination, that, that one of the defining sort of characteristics of Texas is this kind of uh, ability to just make it on your own the american dream very um individualistic and it's not just entrepreneurship it's big multinational corporations it's like toyota set up its um its american headquarters in not even in dallas but just like in the northern suburbs of dallas somewhere um and which, which i know quite well because i wrote a big piece about the Dallas Cowboys organization, and they set up their headquarters in Frisco, which I think like 10 years ago was basically a dot on the map and is now in One stoplight. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Now they're like eight high schools. You know, it's amazing. They, 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 yeah, they're growing at like, I, no, I think they're growing at eight high schools like per year or something. It's yeah. absolutely insane. They have a little stadium there, which the Dallas Cowboys built, a, a small stadium by, by um, uh, Texas standards, just for... Um, 
the high schools. They had yeah. there were four or five high schools which they which play there. Um, but these companies, the, the amount of growth that you're seeing for in, an investment that you're seeing in Texas um, dwarfs what you're seeing in certainly in New York or many other you know richer states. And there's this idea that that's related to um, taxes and and low taxes, and also to, I would say, to housing affordability. That yeah. like there's this there's no zoning that people can just put up housing. They can grow Frisco from nothing to enormous in no time at all. There's no one going to stop them. There's no NIMBYs, and that means that immigrants and you know both from other countries and from other parts of the country. Um, can move to Texas, have a very high, have a relatively high standard of living at relatively low cost, and that just fuels more and more growth. Is and that is that working? Well, Houston is the embodiment of that, uh, and you know, Houston decided to have no zoning uh, back in the fifties because they thought zoning was a communist plot, and. Uh, it was an odd thing because Bill White, the former mayor, said that, you know, liberals looked at the situation, you know, the proposal to eliminate zoning. And they thought, well, maybe this will help with integration. And uh, so they, they did not pose an objection. And, and did it? It did. It's now Houston is considered by some measures the most diverse city in America. And Part of that is because of the absence of zoning, I think, because affordable housing is so much more easily built. Now, there are, there are weird things. And when you go to Houston, you'll see, you know, erotic nightclubs next to a shopping center in a, or a house made out of beer cans. And, you know, just <laughs> things that people feel free to express themselves. You have skyscrapers and neighborhoods and, you know, that kind of a thing. On the other hand, uh, if you are, you know, the property values are, are much lower. And uh, if you compare it to uh, Los Angeles, which is the easiest comparison for Houston because they're both big, sprawling entities, uh, housing prices in Houston are about 40% of what they are in L.A. And that's good, right? It's good because it keeps the city diverse and energetic. But isn't there also a bit of this kind of paradox here where on the one hand, the lack of you know zoning laws allows for a tremendous amount of, of housing to be built. However, it also results in housing being built on floodplains. So on the one hand, they're yes, very that, good that, things, but also some pretty <laughs> yeah, uh, dangerous yeah. things. Well, you know, there should be some, uh, at least buyer beware. Uh, a lot of those people that bought those houses on in the floodplains had no idea what they were doing. Some uh, in the Hurricane Harvey, for instance, you know, there was housing built in what was supposed to be a catchment basin for a flood. And what happened, of course, they were flooded. Uh, but uh, many of the homeowners later said we had no idea. Uh, I think there, you know, government does have a role in protecting people from that kind of catastrophe. Yeah, it does seem that uh, the the lack of the lack of zoning laws and the sort of lax attitude about regulation is going to bode really poorly. I mean, for the whole country, but for Texas specifically, um, as climate change becomes more and more of reality. What we saw with Harvey, it seems like one of climate change kind of hangs over the whole state, kind of in the book a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that's a problem for the state to be led by climate change skeptics uh, means that, you know, there'd be little incentive for them to dedicate the kind of money that would be needed to protect our infrastructure, especially our coastline, where our most populous city is and where our most precious uh, resources, the you know, the ports and the refineries mm -hmm. are located. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a tremendous liability for the state in the future. And you really do see echoes of it nationally, too, I think, the reluctance to deal with reality. Um, and, and you would hope a, a state like Texas would sort of lead the way instead of, you know, denying reality. And it, it could do I think, something I think really you see it in virtually all coastal states yeah. is yeah. this reluctance. People want to live on the coast for a million obvious reasons. And the government is very reluctant to tell them they can't do that, even though living on the coast in this day and age is inherently dangerous. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and insurance companies are, you know, have a, a rider which allows, you know, people to buy insurance at a reasonable rate when you're living in a perilous situation, not just in the on the coastline of Texas, but you know, for instance in California where, you know, fires routinely crop off these you know, developments and and people move right back in. Yeah. And some of the stories you tell in the book about um, living near areas where there's fracking going on were sort of horrifying. <laughs> um, you know, people, kids coughing up blood, I feel like, was one of the stories. And um, Yeah, the nosebleeds Yeah, the nosebleeds, so yeah. yeah. Um, it's, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> Texas isn't, you know, the number one energy producer. And, um, you know, fracking is... You know, fascinating. You know, we've had an experience, you know, three times in our history in Texas of totally changing uh, the world economy and the American economy, of course, because of our uh, oil discoveries. And, you know, the first one was uh, at the turn of the 20th century when uh, this con man named Patillo Higgins decided to drill a, a, a well uh, near Beaumont in this gassy hill uh, and predicted that he would find oil at a thousand feet, which was, you know, he made up this figure and, uh, and yet, and he wanted to produce a well that produced 50 barrels per day. Uh, and so he, he, he drilled this well and sure enough at a thousand feet, uh, there's this huge roar and, you know, all this uh, drilling pipe flew up over the derrick. And uh, it was terrifying. Nobody had ever seen that before. And the, the you know the the workers, the roughnecks, crept up to clean up the mess. And then suddenly, this giant gurgling sound and rocks spewed out, and oil <laughs> came out 150 feet into the air. It was the first gusher. And for the next nine days before they capped it, 100,000 barrels of oil a day was coming out of the well called Spindletop, and that totally changed it was equal to it was more than all the oil produced in america at the time and the same thing happened again in east texas in the 1930s with uh, the east texas strikes and then finally when you get around to fracking with george mitchell uh who was in many respects i think a tragic figure one of the greatest wildcatters texas ever produced but he had the idea that you could get gas and oil out of what he called tight rock, which is shale. And it took him uh, 200, 250 wells that he tried to frack and make it profitable before he finally did produce a, a fracking well that, in his opinion, was going to save the planet. Because you know, he saw that oil was running out and 
coal was the only alternative. And that would ruin the atmosphere. And, you know, they all, so he decided natural gas was cleaner. And so if he could find a way to frack out the gas from the fields in North Texas, he would be able to save the planet. Unfortunately, he wasn't aware of the kind of greenhouse gases that were going to come along with that. And, of course, the lack of regulation and oversight has made that problem even worse. So Texas is also the... I would say, arguably, the national leader in clean energy, though, right? That's the paradox, isn't it? And one has to credit Rick Perry to some extent. When he was governor, um, the you know Texas already has the installed capacity for twenty four percent of its energy needs coming from alternative energy. Most of that is wind out in West Texas and along the coast. And if you drive out, even in the Permian Basin, which is the headquarters of the treasure trove of, of oil and gas in Texas, you'll see pumping jacks and wind. Mills, <laughs> they're together in the same field. Uh, it is a, there's a, in Dallas and some other places in Texas, you can choose your energy program. You want to, you know, you can decide how where you where the energy comes from that you use. And if you choose alternative energy, which may be more expensive, but at night it's free because the wind blows at night, and they have to have some way of unloading it. So they let you have it free at night. And I think it's kind of hard to to beat free. Especially if that's <laughs> when you're recharging your electric car. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I, I, I think that, uh, you know, with all the talk about energy and oil and gas, uh, Texas has really forged ahead more than any other state in creating alternative forms, forms of energy. Hello, I'm Emmy Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. So let's let's talk a little bit more about the you know this it's an energy economy the the by far the biggest industry in Texas is oil I, I would guess that healthcare is a distant second yeah um and it has been as you say for a hundred years and how has that shaped because it it is growing insanely fast you have a projection in your book that's going to have 50 million people in like a few decades it's yeah. going to be um it, the, the degree to which texas and florida combined are going to dominate the future of, of the u.s economy i think is under um appreciated tell me a little bit about the status of oil in particular in like creating what it means to be Texas and how that has shaped the state and what that means for the whole country really going forwards. Well, oil is is a part of our economy and it's a part of our culture. And, you know, the economy, uh, going back to the turn of the 20th century, you know, oil, but when, at that time, before we really had any appreciable oil, the money, to the extent that there was any money in Texas, came from cattle and timber and and uh, it had a very small amount of oil as a part of it. Um, oil changed that. Oil created millionaires, 
and uh, and th- that was the beginning of you know of having those oversized dollars for sale at the at the airport and the in the the stereotype of the Texas you know, millionaire, which is which is a very different kind of millionaire to like the East Coast millionaire or the West Coast millionaire. It's right. Like there's more um, kind of I I guess like some weird combination of luck and bravery, and it's not a ba- it's not really a skills based thing, right? Right, it's a gamble. Growing up in the in the eighties, I mean, there was the TV show Dallas, and every time you talk about uh-huh. the Texas millionaires and oil, I can't help but think of Larry Hagman in a big ten gallon <laughs> hat. Um, but go on, I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, <laughs> one of the keys to I think understanding uh, the Texas culture at the time is that you know getting rich in terms of you know cattle or oil uh, was not a matter of education. You know, is a matter of drive and persistence and luck, and uh, and and we valued those things and do still value those things. They're you know those are good qualities, but they're not essential necessarily for a high tech economy. And uh, you know, so we're transitioning. We're in a and and stereotypes. The the legend, the myth of Texas still lives on, uh, and I think it will always endure. You know, Texas reminds me of a lot of countries that have just a tremendous access to resources, which on the one hand is is can be great. But then on the other hand, it can cause a lack of investment in other industries. And as you said, things like education, infrastructure. So, yeah, Yeah. is there a resource curse in Texas? Are we is Texas does it risk going the way of, I don't know. Nigeria or Venezuela rather than Norway. No. No, Texas has navigated past that. And I think that that's to the credit of the leadership of the state, uh, not just the political leadership, but the business leadership. And you actually have a little baby sovereign wealth fund, right? It has like $10 billion in <laughs> well, it. Well, it's going to be $11 billion this year. Uh, the, the, the thing about uh Texas is that you know when when the with oil we lived in a boom and bust economy and uh, I think one of the reasons that people hated Texas so much and many still do but uh, was that when when Texas was booming that meant that oil prices were high which meant that it was hard for other people uh, you know the inflationary uh, experience for most of the country but Texas was always doing well whereas when oil prices were low Texas economy was flat and everybody felt great <laughs> and so but you know in 2006 we had you know oil prices going under $30 a barrel and 70,000 jobs were lost in energy jobs in Houston alone but the economy of Texas did not go into a recession and that was i think a turning point to demonstrate that the economy in Texas has become diversified and that we're not relying entirely on the oil sector to keep us afloat and i think this is also interesting moving forward because if you look at what's happening now i think people say similarly like oh going with shale oil is there going to be this similar boom and bust structure and you know obviously at some point prices will we've already obviously been seeing price declines but if you look at the financing that people are using now for um for fracking it is quite different than it was in say the 80s when in the 80s it was much more reliant on these kind of local thrifts savings and loan for 
financing, whereas now it's more on the capital markets through high yield issuance of high yield debt or from private equity. So it's much it's spread out across essentially the globe as opposed to being just kind of consolidated in Texas, which makes the banking system far less vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, because the 80s uh, was a catastrophe for Texas because those SNLs that you're referencing were giving out these absurd loans. You know, uh, they would people were buying condos for $200,000 in the morning and it'd be resold three or four times by the afternoon for a million. It was nuts. People went to prison for it. And uh, it was it was a very, very crazy period of time in our economy. And I think having a more reliable base of uh, uh, and responsible base for financing is very helpful to the state and to the economy. So the growth of, of Texas looking forward, it looks maybe more like the growth of Florida. It's not it, like the myth of Texas will endure and Texans will be very proud Texans even before they're proud Americans. But the sort of reality on the ground of, of, of what people are doing and, and how they're behaving is going to, uh, it, it's not it's not going to be that different. You know, I think people are drawn to Texas for many different reasons. And, you know, the, the legend, the myth that we're talking about is part of it. And that's, it's an asset. It's a lot, it's a burden sometimes. I remember when I was a young man, I was teaching in Cairo and, um, I went out to the pyramids, and there was a stable there. I used to go out and ride, although I'm, uh, you know, an urban cowboy. <laughs> I grew up in Dallas, and I, I was not much of a horseman, but I, I would go out, and this, they found out I was from Texas, and they used to call me Texas. And, uh, and I, you know, one day I went out there, and they said, oh, Texas, we have a horse for you. And two guys bring out this rearing stallion with his paws ripping the air and his nostrils flaring. And, of course, being Texas, I had to get on this beast, and he took me halfway to Libya. But I I felt I was literally astride the Texas myth, that it was so, it was so vivid in their minds that I was the kind of person that could do that. And uh, it's a challenge. But it's also it, it, it beckons to people, and it's exciting, uh, you know, in, in many respects. And I think that's part of why people are drawn to the state. There's a kind of vitality about it, and a sense of freedom that it emits, and that is the lure of the state. And you know, I think that's you know one of the reasons I feel optimistic is that you know, if, if we fail, for instance, to educate our children, that would be un-Texan of us. Um, this is a business podcast, but I did want to ask you, uh, there's so much talk now about Texas maybe turning purple, turning blue. I mean, you compare it to California. Everyone compares it a lot to California, which used to be red and now it's turned blue. Um, yeah. Is that ever going to happen, do you think? And if it happens, it's going to be, what's that going to mean for the country? Well, it will happen. Uh, the The growth in Texas is largely in the cities and the suburbs. And uh, what was really striking about this last midterm election is that the suburbs, which had been so red, turned purple. Mm -hmm. uh, the cities are blue. Every city in Texas is blue. Uh, so, the, you know, the demography of the future of Texas is, it, it's, you know, brown. You know, uh, we have 40% of our population now is Hispanic. Uh, the white majority, has, days of that are over. 
But the, but the demography is changing, and I think that uh, the Republican Party in Texas especially hasn't come to grips with the future of the state, and they're fighting a, a rearguard action instead of uh, going out and, and, and actually recruiting you know, the kind of candidates that would appeal to this new majority. And uh, you know, I think that, that you know, so is, there are other people moving to the state who come from different political traditions. And, you know, when, when our family moved to Dallas uh, in 1960, we were a part of the change that turned Texas red. My father was a, a Nixon uh, man, and uh, he, uh, he, you know, Dallas was the first city in, in Texas to elect a Republican congressman. So, you know, that, that demography, that turnover is what turned Texas red back then. And I think the demography turnover uh, now is what is turning the state purple and will eventually turn it blue. And I'm kind of curious just in terms of the economic policy of like these candidates that are Democrats that are doing a little bit better in Texas, are do they tend to support the type of business friendly policies that people associate with Texas or don't they? Yeah, they do. I mean, I I don't think that there's much of an agenda for people that are not uh, at least uh, encouraging of business in Texas. Uh, the you know there are people that I well take the example of Beto O'Rourke. He has some very progressive views uh, that would ally him with uh, some of you know Bernie Sanders type people. But uh, you know essentially, uh, if you want to get elected in Texas, you have to. Uh, make uh, some kind of accommodation with the fact that Texas is a business-oriented state. And that's our identity now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's what most Texans want. And Beto, of course, I wasn't planning on asking this, but I feel I have to, is um, he was the congressman for El Paso, Uh which is, in my mind, very special city because it really does straddle the border. It, it's it's like two halves of a city. Um, one one half is in Mexico. One half is in the United States. And it used to be pretty porous. And obviously, it's much less porous now. But is is there a is is there a sense in which Texas can or should be getting closer to Mexico? Mexico is our primary trading partner. So we have to we have this relationship with Mexico that only border states really understand. Uh, and the closer you get to the border, the more you realize that the border itself is a kind of separate entity. And you know, people who live on the border identify themselves that way. Uh, and they have, you know, there are people that go back and forth every single day. They're workers and they're students and so on. So there is an integration that I think the further you get away from the border, the less you understand that. Uh, and that's why people who live on the border, uh, like Will Hurd is a Republican uh, whose uh, district is on the border. It's larger than the state of Indiana. And uh, it's... You know, he is not for a wall, for instance, although he's a Republican. But, you know, it's, there are other ways of dealing with it that I think people who are actually living that experience of, you know, the interaction of the border, the vitality of the border commerce, uh, there's, it would be terribly ruinous to the Texas economy to shut that off. I don't know if you know about the 
sleet money numbers round. Yeah, I, I was warned about You were warned about the sleet money, <laughs> yeah. n- n- sleet money numbers round. Do you have a number for the numbers round? 42. Oh, I like that one. It's the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and what is 42? It's the number of electoral votes Texas will have after the next census, wow. which will be four more than we have now. And the reason that's important is that, you know, that's growing faster than any other number of electoral votes anywhere else. California is the largest state. It has 55 electoral votes, but it's not going to get any new ones. And it hasn't had any new electoral votes since 2003. And you know, New York, for instance, has been losing electoral votes and population for decades. And Florida and Texas, are, as you point out, are really the future of the country. And I think it's I don't think Texans have fully taken on the responsibility that they have uh, for leading the country. It's one thing to be a a semi apart from the country, as as Texans often like to think of themselves. But it's another to realize that we have the responsibility of leading America. One out of 10 school children right now is a Texan. Wow. Anna. So my number is 50,000. This is a statistic from um, from Lawrence's book, which I found really kind of fun. So this was the price of an emu in the 1990s. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently it was this emu bubble. There was a llama boom. It wasn't llamas, it was emus. Yeah, it was emus. Yes, I I really enjoyed this. And I actually looked up some other articles on it. This is a bizarre bit of economic (laughs) history. There were like government loans to kind of encourage breeding. There was like an (laughs) avian Ponzi scheme. It was amazing. Uh Uh, But alas, then the, uh, the, the price fell. What, what happened to the price of an emu, Anna? Well, apparently, I'm, I, I'll be perfectly honest, I do not know where the price of an emu is today. But apparently in the very late 90s, it went to something like, you know, $5 an emu. So, Oh, you can't give them away. And and uh, there was a, after, I mean, people just opened their gates and let the emus out. <laughs> and uh, there were, in some counties, there were emu wranglers to try to round them up. And they're pretty difficult birds to capture. And what are these crazy, crazy feral hog things which you apparently have? Oh, yeah, have we should have talked about of? that. Oh, the <laughs> hogs are a terrible problem, in not just in Texas, but all over. And, and some uh, hunting enthusiasts somewhere along the line decided to crossbreed them with Russian boars. So they, they are, they're huge. They're, they weigh more than a deer. And they have these huge tusks that come out and, uh, and they're, they're, you know, they, and they can run, uh, I've forgotten, very fast. And they can smell uh, seed corn planted, you know, and they'll dig it up uh, right after you've planted it. They just ruin farms. And so, you know, trying to, uh, Trying to eliminate or trim the population of feral hogs has been a goal of our political <laughs> leaders. And in the last legislative session, they passed a law allowing people to shoot uh, feral hogs from balloons, which I'm sure will be a new sport. <laughs> this is this is the bit of the book which I was just reading out loud to my wife, and I was like, "Wait, do you realize there are two thousand wild tigers in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, pets." <laughs> It's just like, yeah, this is the state where where keeping tigers as pets is just, yeah, it's something people do. Um, 
Emily, we kind of got off track. Do you have a number? Uh, yes. My number is 17. It's also a Texas number. That is the number of black female judges that were just sworn in in Harris County in Texas, which is apparently the nation's third largest county, which includes Houston. And um, I don't know if anyone else uh, saw the picture of them um, taken before the election, but it's just really inspiring all these women. Uh, they were all running kind of separately, but then realized that they were all running for office and sort of um, campaign together. And their slogan was Black Girl Magic. And um, it's really cool. They all have four-year terms. It's really an interesting phenomenon. And uh, one of them beat uh, Ed Emmett, who was a longstanding county judge there, probably the most important official in the whole Houston entity. And uh, she's a graduate student. She's 28 years old. And is she going to now basically take on that job of being yeah. the de facto mayor of Houston? She is. The, she, it's her job now. So I hope she takes it on. And I think they had record voter turnout from um, people of color in the county, which I think um, you mentioned in, in the book, like if um, if people of color turned out at higher rates, then the, the state would flip faster. So it sort of seems like a kind and of a the, bellwether The key election. to that is having candidates like those judges yeah. that really appeal to people. And yeah. I think that was transformative, especially in Houston. Talking about like changing demographics and the way that it, you know, there's this lag with which uh, elected representatives seem to catch up. And that lag can be decades. Um, the title of your book is God Save Texas. And there's, it is a deeply religious state. Um, my number is 23%, which is a national statistic, which is the proportion of Americans who identify as either atheist or agnostic or having no religion at all. Um, the proportion of Congress who identifies as such is like one. <laughs> not, it's not even 1%. It's just like one person. Kirsten Sinema, I think, is the only member of Congress who, who, will, who will say that. And it that... <laughs> That one, I'm I'm fascinated to see like when and whether that becomes politically acceptable in our in our um, candidates for office, you know, up and down. Well, we'll have to move through the period, the sea of hypocrisy. Uh, <laughs> we have to paddle across that great, uh, great body of water because we, there are so many people in public office right now that we know don't believe what they say, and uh, but they they cater to uh, this, the, you know, the popular uh, whims. But one day there will be a candidate uh, who, who doesn't doesn't express any kind of religious leanings and won't and won't be hypocritical and then you'll see that there'll be more people in office like that but it'll be a long time before they come from texas <laughs> lawrence wright thank you thank you thank you for coming on slate money um for greeting me i have to i have to explain that um you know larry is is, is a i would say like medium well-done celebrity around these parts. Everyone in Texas knows him. And um, as you will understand when you read the book, he's, he's, he's been everywhere, knows everyone. It's been a privilege to have you on Slate Money. Thanks for coming in. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to a whole host of producers who have made this one possible today. There's David Alvarez here at KUT in Austin. There's June Thomas in New York. There's Max Jacobs in California somewhere. So thanks to all of them. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. Money.